We plough and sow, we are so low that we delve in the dirty clay Till we bless the plain with a golden grain and the veil with a fragrant hay Our place we know, we are so low down at the landlord's feet Oh, we're not too low, the bread to grow, too low, the bread to eat Welcome back, listeners. This is episode two of A People's History of Scotland. I am Sarah Bennett, and with me is Chris Banbury, author of said book. So today we get to chapter two of the book, and I think this is perhaps where people will start to feel that they're on a bit more familiar terrain, because if you're asked to name a few famous Scots, most people would be able to reel off the names of the national heroes, Sir William Wallace, King Robert the Bruce, and the Scottish National Anthem, which centres on the Battle of Bannockburn, won by Bruce in 1314 and supposedly decisive in winning Scotland's freedom from England. We also know both men are celebrated throughout Scotland. We've got the National Wallace Monument, which was built in 1869. For those that don't know where that is, it overlooks the Stonebridge Battlefield, the site of his greatest military success. And if you go on the website, like I did recently, it describes Wallace as a patriot and a martyr. And in 1929, you get statues of Wallace and Bruce erected at the entrance to Edinburgh Castle. In 1964, we get the equestrian statue of Bruce erected at Bannockburn. In more recent times, we've seen the release of films such as Braveheart in 1995 and Outlaw King in 2018, which incidentally was available on Netflix the last time I looked and is worth a watch. Other streaming services are available, of course. Let's just go back to Braveheart a minute, though, Chris, because that's the one I think most people are familiar with. Now, I know it's not a documentary, but Chris, how accurate is that? There's bits of it I think are very accurate. I mean, I got heavy criticism for saying that I thought the way it showed the Scottish aristocracy and how venal and treacherous they were was uh, quite accurate. I think it also begins with uh, resistance from below. That's quite unusual in a feudal society where it's very hierarchical and the peasantry, of course, are uh, semi-enslaved as serfs. But faced with an English occupation by Edward I with higher taxation, with a, a very heavily militarised English presence, with the Scottish allies, it has to be said, occupation, as always, led to resistance and an uprising. And this relatively lowly figure in the feudal order I mean, it's the worst you could get in terms of being a, a nobility as a knight, William Wallace. So, you know, this is unusual that he takes this uh, step and drives this rebellion. And I think with important allies in the church hierarchy, Andrew Murray, who's his co-leader at Stowen Bridge, who dies of his wounds. So it's not simple as that. But I think it's also important to say that this is also in part a civil war in Scotland because a whole section of the most powerful uh, nobles the commons and the allies of Balliol's have sided with Edward I effectively in this war. And Robert the Bruce has sided, as he did on a number of occasions, with Edward I. This is a feudal society. Bruce, as with the others, owns land in England, to which he gives homage to the English king for those lands. He also is vying with the commons and others to become king, hopes Edward I makes him king of Scotland. In fact, Robert the Bruce is keen to become king anywhere, and much later on will attempt to get his brother the kingdom of uh, Ireland, but that doesn't work out either. So I think it's important to, to stress that, of course, it's a film. It's a Hollywood film, and there's serious criticism you can make of it, and it fits in with a kind of nationalist mythology. But there's elements to it which I think are, are relatively accurate. I think just to round that off, 
what's important to say is, is that Bannet Bonham, watch it ends, is not quite the end of the story. Mm-hmm. The English don't give up in trying to subjugate Scotland. There is a second war of independence and continually England invades Scotland, increasingly less with the idea of conquering it, but more by using its military power to exert influence over the Scottish kingdom so that it doesn't act out of turn with its own interests. The Scots respond with an alliance with France, but again, France always puts its own interests first, and Scotland doesn't really benefit from that alliance with France. The most notable occasion, if you skip on to 1514, is Flodden, where James IV invades England at the instigation of the French to help in their war with the English, meets what is a relatively modern English army with artillery, with all the new techniques which are coming to warfare, with a feudal host, James I himself is killed. So there's a dynamic which doesn't end with Bannetburn. Mm-hmm. Yes, they've won a kingdom, a separate kingdom. It's important to say it's just something else. This is a kingdom. It's not a nation state as we understand it today. It's a feudal kingdom in which Robert the Bruce and the Stuart monarchy depend on that chain of nobility to rule. And again and again, in what comes to Stuart dynasty, what you see is the Stuart kings generally die, not in their bed of illness, but are murdered, die in war, whatever, is that every time a young child comes to the throne, there's a regency, and the nobility start fighting over themselves, fighting to gain possession of the young king, the infant king, and there's again an outbreak of feuding between that high nobility. So it's not a stable state as we understand it. It's a feudal state. Just to reassure anybody who's reading this chapter, I've read it about three times. And it's not because of the authorship or the editing skills. I've read it three times to try and keep up with what is going on. Because you really get the sense of this tumultuous period and this almost chaos, it feels like at times, that's happening And I think if we could go back up to what we talked about last week, what we're obviously trying to work through here in this podcast is the idea of nationhood and Scotland. I mean, as you pointed out, again, we're not in the nation of Scotland. We're talking about a kingdom. But the portrayal is, and I know it's only a film, but it's this portrayal of the whole of Scotland against the whole of England. But as you've just touched on there, the allegiances are mixed. They're cross-border. I think it's important to say something else. Those people who gathered to fight at Bannerburn for uh, Bruce, they were fighting as, which is our national anthem says, for a wee bit of Hill of Glen, literally, literally. Because if they didn't come to fight, the feudal lords mm. would have burnt their home. They would have killed them, hung them. That was the nature of feudal society. You held the land in return for military service. And if you did not join the nobles' army, you'd wreak revenge. They'd had very little notion of who was king in Edinburgh or Dunfermline or wherever the capital was at the time. Very little notion of that. Their loyalty was to a feudal lord who was physical presence in their life and a rapacious presence in their life. And they had to answer the summons of that feudal lord. And so in talking about feudal Scotland, well, we touched on it last week, but you mentioned that the borders, the geography of Scotland actually is probably still pretty much the same as it was in that period? I think it's very important to stress that. I mean, Scotland, like England, is very different from other European uh, countries in the sense that by literally 1000, the Scottish border with England is fixed, and obviously also the English border, although it has to expand into Wales, which it does under Edward I. But it's remarkably stable. I mean, they lose to Edward I, they lose Berico and Tweed and, and never properly regain it. But apart from that, that marks out, uh, marks out Scotland. I just want to return to something else you said, which I think is also important. When you mentioned this monument at Stirling Bridge, the statues of Wallace and Bruce outside Edinburgh Castle and so on, 
This is in the 19th century, a conscious attempt to create a romanticized myth of Scotland. People should take offense to that. Myths can develop a life of their own. We see that all the time that myths do. But people like Sir Walter Scott are creating a myth of a heroic Scotland. I mean, what part of that involves taking everything that was associated with Jacobitism, once had been a great threat, but after 1746 has been destroyed, we'll discuss this later, and then co-opting it because it's about monarchy and loyalty, supposedly, to the Stuarts. And that's transposed into Victorian times as loyalty to the monarchy and also this military tradition which is there as part of empire. And again, we'll discuss that. So there's a, a romanticized, but also militarized identity associated with Scotland, which is built up in the 19th, uh, 19th century. And Wallace and Bruce are very important to this. I mean, it sounds strange, but by that time, it's, they feel safe to co-op those people. Yeah, and there's this sort of nation building that, that happens 17th, 18th century onwards is always looking backwards in order to find its justification in some ancient past, which means that there's this inalienable right to exist. And of course, you then co-opt those people that might not have been your heroes at one point. They become inverted commas, neutered in a way that they can be put to the disposal of that, that greater myth-making. So we've said that the geographical borders were pretty much the same. So you've got quite different landscape, well, administrative landscape or the way that things are organized. What would that be like? You'd have had very small towns. I mean, Edinburgh, for instance, one of the royal boroughs, it'd be extremely small. I mean, if, if we were to visit it today, we'd think it's a village, a big village, but we wouldn't think that much. There was a certain amount of trade, most of it at a local level. Scotland did trade with the Baltic, with Scandinavia, with Flanders and France, but it was poor. It had very little trade. So in terms of the urban structure, quite restricted. The vast majority of people live on the land. And there's something else I want to say here. There had been very little division, as we now know it, between the highlands and the lowlands at the time. Society was essentially the same. The structure was the same. There would have been very little difference. A change in the fact that Gaelic was on the retreat, having once been spoken in virtually all what's now the Kingdom of Scotland, apart from probably the Lothians, it's a process of retreat encouraged by the monarchy, encouraged by the church, but still the case that lots of people have been familiar with Gaelic. I mean, Robert the Bruce actually spoke it. His mother was from a Gaelic Irish background. So it wasn't that distinct. You know, you wouldn't have thought as you're driving north, coming you know, across the Tay, you'd enter a different society. It'd be very familiar to you. And also we mentioned that, obviously, at this stage, when we're talking about Scotland, it's not a state in the way that we've come to know a state today. But it does therefore mean in terms of administration, the church comes to play quite an important role in the establishment of some kind of centralizing control. Is that is that right? As in all fuel societies, the church is by and large where the educated are. Some of the nobility are educated and it's increasing as time goes on, but that's where the literate population are. If you've seen the Umberto Echo film, and the, the title is just for mm. the name of the roads. Name of the roads. It yep. shows the church actually physically trying to control knowledge by controlling mm -hmm. the library. Of course, the church is also a feudal power with its own serfs. So it's not a benign force. But what's important is a section of the Scottish hierarchy at the time of Wallace and Bruce are keen to not become under the subjugation of Canterbury in England. They are keen to get papal recognition that they are in, in church and they get it, which means certain sections of the church hierarchy are prepared to support Wallace and then Bruce in turn. 
And that is quite important in giving popular support because the clergy play a very important role in a feudal society. You know, that's where you more or less get your news from. If you imagine, it's almost the media in today's terms in a feudal society. And, and so did the church have a role in actually sort of spreading feudalism? It had played a role. The, the initial church, of course, in Scotland had been a Gaelic church from Ireland. And that's quite important in what historically used to be called the Dark Ages, that Irish Christianity had survived in Ireland and had been a centre of knowledge, which had spread to Iona with St. Colm. The new impetus towards feudalism, part of that was in defeating that Gaelic church and imposing a Roman church, Mm -hmm. which recognised that hierarchy of feudalism. And that was done. And as the Normans were introduced under King David and others into Scotland deliberately, they were attracted to Scotland to create a feudal force. The king needed heavy cavalry uh, to fight in his wars. He needed his allies to control the land. This is where the Bruces come in and the uh, Balliols, etc. They themselves, of course, would, once they developed their power, we could often turn on the king. But it's a feudal society, and the church is very much part of that and promoting it. And initially that feudalism was restricted to the royal heartlands of Lothian, but then it extends outwards begins in the, the Royal Heartlands of Lothian, which is the richest part of Scotland at the time. And it's where English is largely spoken. And it begins to expand. So you see Bruce gaining lands in Galloway because that needs to be controlled. It's a Gaelic, Irish Gaelic community. It's out of control. It's rather like the Highlands. It's a centre of feuding, etc. So is the border region. Much of Scotland is like this, to be perfectly honest. So you introduce the Bruce family as being the policeman for the Scottish Crown. But of course, the problem with that is once you give control of large tracts of territory and people to these families, they themselves have their own interests they wish to push. Mm. And when they see an opportunity to push against the monarchy, they do so. And this is a lemotaph of Scottish history right the way up into uh, really up to 1707. The Scottish nobility don't want a powerful monarchy because they don't want to be under control. So they're always looking for an opportunity to undermine the monarchy, particularly the Stuart kings, who really have a torrid time of it. So, okay, um, so under feudalism, when it expands and brings further changes, what's the establishment of the ruling class? Who is the ruling class at this point? The ruling class are the most powerful nobles who have large amounts of land. And then there's a hierarchy of nobles. So you have your earls, et cetera, then you go down through counts. There's a various procedure right the way down to being a knight which is basically you have to give service to the superior. No, this is very important. The whole notion is you have to give service to your superior in the feudal chain of things. And then you have serfdom, which dies out with the Black Death. You have a peasantry who are holding the land from then on really for service. This is quite important really until almost the 19th century. Money rents don't come into it. You're paying a rent in kind through your crops, your livestock, living a very Poor, poor existence, scratching, literally scratching and living from the land, using what develops as a run rig system, uh, which again survives literally into the 19th, uh, 19th century. Famine is a constant reality. Plague is common. Feuding, cattle raiding, all of this is common. Uh, when times get tough, if the food is short, then you're, uh, you, know, you look around and see livestock over the other glen. You want to go and raid it or seize it. Quite a brutal society. And so the vast majority of the population at that time would have been subsistence farmers, probably living on the verge of starvation. The other thing to say as well, you wouldn't move very far away from your own wee bit of hill and glen. 
you know, few mm. peasants would have ever gone to Edinburgh, apart from perhaps some who lived in the Lodians who travelled in to sell some, sell some produce. But there were market centres, and this becomes important. As feudalism develops, the number of markets increases. Again, we would almost laugh if we were transported back in Solon compared to you know, our market today. But commerce begins to enter into the peasant world. And of course, things will change as time goes on. Are you enjoying this episode of A People's History of Scotland? Make sure to hit the subscribe button and leave a review. You can find us at Contour Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This way, you'll get every episode as soon as it's released, as well as all the other shows on Contour Radio Podcast Network. And head over to contour.scot, where you can read up-to-date analysis of news, culture, and events in Scotland and across the globe. And let's just turn to the role of the church for a minute and all of this, because the hardship that ordinary people would be suffering, that would have been exacerbated by actions of the church too, would it? Uh, the church was, was, was twofold. It was a feudal landowner. So it was involved in the oppression of the peasantry, taking their crops, using their feudal service, making them pay for using their mills to crush the corn, etc. At the same time, it did give charity when times got bad. One of the few, the only pro-institution in a feudal society, which could help, it would have been the church, which gives it a certain amount of precision. Now, don't over-egg this. I don't have to say you have to put it in the context of it being an oppressor, a constant oppressor, dragging the wealth off, keeping it itself in Scotland, and also sending it to Rome. But it gives an element of charity as well, which is gives some element of relief to the peasantry. But also you would get the relationship between the nobles and the church, would you not? Would they not also be vying to secure bishoprics and other positions in the church. Particularly for the illegitimate children, yes. Yes, of course. Uh, who then have more illegitimate children. So uh, celibacy wasn't very strictly enforced inside the Scottish church. So you often have bishoprics, which are literally a family affair, held by the feudal noble who wants to gain control. And this is, again, a very important element of feudal society, which begins to bring about change, is nobility want to control the church because of its wealth and land. If you can have your bastard son as the Bishop of Murray, whatever, then that gives you a certain amount of influence and access to a certain amount of wealth. So control of the church becomes an important aim and ability. And of course, in the 16th century, they have an opportunity arises with the Reformation, which they seize with both their hands. We'll get onto that next week in the next uh, episode, hopefully. So now in your book, you do quote uh, the socialist Thomas Johnston writing on our noble families, talking about the brutal nature, I suppose, of society at this time. It, it does seem to be that there's all this vying for power. You've mentioned the sort of conflicting allegiances and relationships with nobles owning land in both England and Scotland, always vying for, for greater power uh, and control. But is it the case? that in this particular period of history that it was all sort of daggers drawn between Scotland and England? After the, particularly after the Second War of Independence, England gave up on the idea they could virtually take over Scotland militarily. Mm. I think what they were trying to do was fight by incursions, which were quite regular, to control Scotland, particularly in terms of its foreign relations. The Scots would react, as they'd always done, they'd come south to raid, literally for wealth, but also as part of this alliance, as I said, with the French. Yeah. And generally what you're discovering is, is that as the period comes in, 
you glimpse it a bit in Braveheart that uh, while the Scots win at Stirling Bridge and Bannockburn, it's clear that English technologically are more advanced. That develops as the feudal period goes on and becomes into the early modern period. So as I say, once you begin to talk about the use of artillery, once you talk about handguns, once you talk about new techniques, I mean, for instance, having big horses, you know, which the Scots generally don't, and having powerful, powerful, heavy cavalry. But as I say, I think they've given up on the idea that they can uh, occupy Scotland. They've seen what happened in two wars of independence, but particularly with Wallace and Bruce. And they want to try and control the Scottish crown. They want to try and control, and they'll, they'll find willing allies all the time among the Scottish nobility. People who are looking for the chance, looking to take money out of a position. People who have been fallen out of favour with the monarchy. Uh, and particularly the losers in Bruce's war. So you have the rise of the McDonald's, allied to Bruce in the Western Highlands at the expense of the McDougal's. That means section of the nobility are displaced, they feel hard done by, given any opportunity, they'll seek an alliance, they'll make their way to London, or they'll serve literally militarily the English crown because they want money, they want position, and hope that in return, the English crown will return the, the lands that have been lost. So not always that goes wrong, despite the constant warfare <laughs> There are these, you know, alliances and allegiances being made between the two kingdoms. What about the relationship with France, though? I mean, what was France hoping to get out of that relationship with Scotland? What France wanted was an ally on England's northern border who they could call upon when times got when they were, they were at war with England, as they were for much of the period, the Hundred Years' War in particular, and they would call upon the Scots to serve them. Large numbers of Scots would also go physically to fight, particularly the younger sons of the nobility who weren't going to get any land, would go and fight for the King of France. One of Walter Scott's uh, novels, Quentin Dodward, is set about this. It's uh, about young men from Scotland going to fight for the French monarchy. But as I say, it was relatively cynical in the sense that France was pursuing its own interests. And if Scotland went to war with England at France's behest, and France then made a peace treaty with uh, the English monarchy because they were more worried about Flanders, the mm. uh, House of Burgundy, then they would just drop the Scots. Great powers relationships are like this, aren't they? I think yeah. it's also just, if I may, it's also something else. If you look at the map of Scotland, we are now always used to a map of Scotland which runs north to south. If you turn it around, what you see in the feudal period is what Scotland is trading with England. It's also trading with Ireland. In many ways, the closest links are to Scandinavia, the Baltic, the low countries, Holland, Flanders, yeah. to an extent, France. So... This period, it's not just simply a question of, you know, we're not used to Scotland being in a, a single market with England. It's a much more varied picture. And Scotland's part of a North Sea area of trade and connections are well established with uh, Scandinavia. And Orkney and Shetland are still part of the Norwegian crown. And of course, the Western Isles are larger Gaelic Norse community until quite late on. And we'll, we'll come back to, obviously, in, in other episodes, this relationship with France, between France and Scotland. In the later Middle Ages, if we move on a bit, you've got the House of Stuart emerging, ruling Scotland from 1371 until 1603, and then both the kingdoms of England and Scotland until 1714. You call this section in the book the unstable House of Stuart, more, more instability. It's another period of tumult and chaos, isn't it? The Stuarts were attempting to create a more powerful monarchy. The nobility were always going to be against that. The problem with the Stuarts is, by and large, every Stuart king died early. And that is a very dangerous moment in a feudal society. If you die leaving an infant as your successor in any feudal country, then the nobility will try to seize the chance. 
They'll try to either physically control that child or to take the throne for themselves. So there's a constant internal fighting. The Stuarts can maybe sometimes reestablish themselves. For instance, James IV, relatively successful, but then goes off to invade England and dies at Flodden, leaving an infant yeah. son. And eventually when James V also dies of illness, Mary, what we should do because Mary, Queen of Scots, is a child. She has to be sent to France because it's so dangerous. Yeah, she goes off to France. So that relationship with England that we return to again and the relationship between Scotland and Europe. So where did Stuart Scotland stand on the European stage? Stuart Scotland was maintained the alliance with France. It would come to terms occasionally with, and make friends, with marry with the English monarchy. What became Scotland Yard in London, Dixon and Dot Green territory, was that was the area Scottish kings stayed in when they visited in the Palace of Westminster when they visited London, or when they'd been captured in battle. That's where they were usually kept as well, and they often were captured in battle and had to be uh, ransomed back. It is a two-way relationship, as I say. I mean, there were, there were family in lots of ways. There was connections. There was trade. There was intellectual, some intellectual exchange. So. I wouldn't want to just sort of say Scotland and England are always at odds. That's not, not true. Also, you know, they're enriching each other in, in many ways. But Scotland is much the poorer, much the smaller, much the poorer country in this. So, it, you know, it's always going to be an unequal relationship. In a feudal society, up to the Reformation, Scots are also having to deal with the papacy, which again mm-hmm. has its own interests. Largely yeah. has come to accept there is an independent Scottish church. At the beginning, they wanted it subjugated to Canterbury, which they trusted accepting that, but also interfering, you know, constant process of interference from that direction as well. Well, before we just about to round up on this week's episode, are there any other key points that you think you'd like to make, Chris, that you haven't touched on yet? Well, I think the crucial thing is to go back to it is you've got this creation of a romanticised version of Scottish nationalism, which is created, as you mentioned, it's part of a trend of romanticism, of literally creating a national identity based on myths. The, the whole creation in, of Marianne in France as a symbol of the uh, Republican mm. order. The restoration in France, the celebration of the Gauls resisting uh, Roman occupation, as you'll remember from the comic Asterix. The Asterix yeah. There's that same process which is recreating how we see Wallace and Bruce and recreating that myth. They're very keen to develop also this idea that Scotland and Highland Scotland have got these military values and military traditions on which they can draw. Because by this time, Scotland is at the cutting edge of British Empire. Mm-hmm. And the Scottish regiments and the Scottish officer corps have been crucial to that. And they create this myth as well in turn. And we've moved on a long time here, you know, but based on a celebration of Scottish soldiers' achievements in the Seven Years' War, the wars against revolutionary France, the Napoleonic France, Crimea. And they want to sort of create this myth that it's always been that way, that the Scots have been this sort of military elite heroic warriors, etc. So Wallace and Bruce fit perfectly and are recreated as part of a British imperial vision in which Scottish identity sits, its own separate identity, but very much tied into empire and very much tied into military. Well, thanks very much for that, Chris. It's great talking to you again. And we will continue exploring this myth creation in the weeks to come. But for now, thanks again. And to all those listening, hope you tune in again for the next episode. Bye for now. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A People's History of Scotland. Next week, we'll be covering Chapter 3 of the book, Reformation and the War of the Three Kingdoms. 
Charting developments in the 16th and 17th centuries, this chapter explores Oliver Cromwell and the English Revolution's impact on Scotland, the Reformation, the Covenanters, and the impact of religion on life in feudal Scotland. This series is only made possible because of support from listeners like you. If you'd like to help us make more shows like this, please head over to Contra.Scot and make a donation or subscribe to our Patreon channel. The music is by Ewan McLennan from the album Stories Still Untold. Special thanks to him for allowing us to use this song. To war we go to fight some foreign country. That yesterday was our greatest friend, today's our enemy. God bless our boys, the papers scream, praise them, the churchmen cry. But oh, when the war is done and we're all home, who cares if we live or die? We'll oh, we'll oh, till that happy day We're called to a heaven on high Oh, and the freedom we never had in our lives Will be there on the day we die But have you seen, oh, what suffering hell on earth For the promise of a heaven above Oh, I not join the fight Till that one day we might See a heaven down here below See a heaven down here below